been, it's usual in the evening time like this to speak on some theme of Dharma teachings, some context for the practice that we're doing here. And I'm certainly happy to do that. And at the same time, I'm concerned for uh, the small amount of time we have together and the wish to respond to people's real areas of interest. So although I can certainly speak on some theme, uh, I'd like to also make some opportunity for responding to people's questions, first of all. And then I'll speak on, uh, on kind of my theme when I feel confident that I've at least responded to your themes. So a few people have left notes in the form of question, uh, have left notes today with questions about practice, which I'll respond to initially. And then you may have other questions that you'd like to ask about Dharma practice, about meditation, about your experience here, about the wider context of teachings, etc. So we'll make time to do that. My uh, request with that would be that the questions come from that which is um, real for you that which you find yourself confronted with, rather than being too much in the realms of the abstract. And tomorrow, there'll be lots of chance to speak about the kind of uh, the transition, the applying what we're doing here in the rest of our life, etc. So I mentioned that to preclude the how do I do this in the rest of my life question from this evening's discussion. So we'll begin with the questions people left as notes. Could you recommend a simple book on Dharma that you could read? The question goes on, but I'll put a book list up at the end of the retreat tomorrow, which will have a list of books I would recommend about meditation, about Dharma teachings in general, etc. So I mention these things now just because I know they're kind of current for people and hopefully by responding to them you can just put them peacefully out of mind for now. I've seen you've spent some time in India. I am going later this year. I wonder if you could recommend a good place to practice, etc. So I'll very happily talk about India in glowing terms tomorrow again, with warm encouragement to go. When trying to follow my breath, how should I deal with colours before me, ever moving and vivid? I have tried think. I have tried thinking... I'm not quite sure what this is. I've tried coming back to the moment, but it just persists. I'm not quite sure what the person means here by I've tried coming back to the moment, as if the moment exists separate from what's happening. And of course in this case the person's talking about uh, colours, appearing before their eyes, but it could be all realm, all manner of things that arise that give us the impression, oh, I'm supposed to be here contacting my breathing, but some other phenomena is happening. And then in this case, the idea, I need to get back to the moment. I wonder where where those colours are happening, if not in the moment. The importance of the breathing in the way we've been practicing, is to establish oneself in bright, intimate, interested, caring contact with what's happening. And if you find yourself unable to do that for any reason, the mind's distracted, the mind's wandering, you're overrun by thoughts of future, past, etc., then it's really helpful to apply that in order to really generate some steadiness, some brightness of mind. But if what you notice, there's some other phenomena through being quiet, through attending to the breathing, through being present, there's some other phenomena that starts to stand out more clearly. 
you don't need to get rid of that phenomena. You can imp- apply that connection, that curiosity, that care we were speaking about yesterday to that phenomena itself. So let those colours be the source of interest. <coughs> What's the reaction to them? What goes on in the body? What's the feeling tone? Do they tend to lead you away and you get caught up and lost? In which case then we can certainly, in recognition of being caught up and lost, have a sense of coming back to or reconnecting with. It can sometimes happen that people experience colours in a way that feels disturbing in some way. can can experience... Um, spatial differences as well can experience the body as being very expanded or feeling very reduced or as if it's taking off in space feeling very light, feeling very heavy etc. None of those things are particularly special in themselves and neither are they any uh, cause for alarm but if you find them frightening in some way it can be helpful to just uh, for example open your eyes and realize, oh yes, things are relatively normal. <laughs> with, the, with the colors in the eyes that the person speaks about, just can also be helpful to check and w- whether there's tension in your eyes and to really relax and soften your eyes and let your gaze fall down. Let your gaze just be, even though it's behind your eyelids, let your gaze just relax and lower. Sometimes when I've been focusing my mind intensely for work or in meditation, I will really enjoy allowing my mind to totally relax. It feels like floating in the sea. I really enjoy these moments. My question is, is this a habit that will make awareness more difficult to achieve? I really enjoy allowing my mind to totally relax. It feels like floating in the sea. Fantastic. (laughs) Beautiful. Again, it's not really about the type of experience we're having. It's about the the nature of our relationship to it. There's a difference between being connected, involved with, interested in what's happening and indulging in what's happening. So if that floating in the sea is something that's kind of unconscious, vague, where the mind is really just going, you know, floating in a spacey way from anywhere to anywhere to anywhere with any random thoughts coming in and out, then yes, that's, n- that's not conducing to awareness. That's unconscious, unaware. But you don't need to change that experience. You don't need to stop relaxing the mind and start focusing intensely on the meditation. But, let, but rather to make that, that sense of relaxed mind, floating mind, to make it conscious. To be really interested in the fact, oh, when the mind's really relaxed, it, it feels beautiful. I really enjoy those moments. A sense of floating in an infinite ocean. No need to change the experience, but certainly worth bringing real connection, real curiosity, real inquiry to that. What is it that's floating? What is it floating in? These kind of profound questions that are not really there to try and find an answer but there as a contemplation to, uh, to deepen our contact with what it means to understand our mind and understand the ocean in which our life is floating.
And then there's, there's some question about one of the Chinese calligraphies hanging in the hall saying, what does it mean? And I'm sorry, I don't have a clue. Managers don't have a clue. There's even a, a, a picture of it. It's the squiggly one at the bottom of the stairs. So we tried some speculation. Somebody, you know what it means. It's the Chinese word for Buddha. Fantastic, thank you. Okay, so I wonder if there are any more questions you may have. Yeah. Um, you said that um, we should focus on any other phenomena. What's going on? What if you've got a cloud of thoughts without a specific thought? Say again, if you've got a... Um, you said, I've got a cloud of thoughts rather than a specific thought. It's just, I know they're there, but I'm not mm-hmm. someone to bring it out. There. It's always there, I'm on the breath. When you say a cloud of thoughts... What is it that suggests that it's cloudy to you? Because I can't actually see the thoughts out there. It's almost like they're contained in a cloud or contained in like a, like a wicker basket. Uh-huh. So they're contained, but then like ticket tape is going to come out. Right. So I would say when there's some steadiness, obviously there's enough steadiness of attention to notice this sense of a cloud-like formation of thought, right? Some sense of ongoing thought, but in a way that's inaccessible somehow. So let the sense of cloudiness or inaccessibility be the object of your attention. Not trying to get at the thoughts, or not trying to do anything with the cloud, not trying to break through... Pardon? No, to actually really feel the sense of cloudiness. It kind of eludes sensing because it's cloudy. Okay, <coughs> so then you feel eluded. How is it to feel like you can't contact your thoughts? How is it? It's just like it's, it's a distraction. Uh-huh. It sounds like it's frustrating maybe as well. I don't know if that's your experience. just going on well I would be a little bit doubtful about that I think if it was just going on and there was no charge to it it wouldn't be as much, so much of an issue that you bring it up it's in the way okay so there's a sense of cloudy thoughts when you attend to that you know you find some sense of frustrating or it's eluding me it's getting in the way right what's it getting in the way of Ah. Uh-huh. So then there's some idea, oh, if the cloud of thoughts weren't there, then I'd really be meditating. But meditation means connection, curiosity and care for what is there. Right? And what's there is a sense of a cloudy lump of thoughts that feel like they're in the way. So then you can really contact that sense of in the wayness and see how does it feel, how does it impact you to sense that something's in the way. That's still a question. How does it impact you to feel like, oh, these cloudy thoughts are in the way? It's just, I thought there's something going on while not was going on, so I can just focus on the breath. Uh-huh. I'm looking for some kind of clarity there. I'm not clarity, but I'm not clarity. It's not bubbling away to it's rather like either one thought I can just dismiss or... Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like resistance, right? I, I, I don't want this to be happening. Yeah. Uh-huh. So then you can really contact and inquire into that resistance. So you see, just by attending to what is there, rather than what should or could be there, whatever you give space to, this is like a fundamental law of things, whatever you give space to, it'll o- it opens up. So... Uh-huh. Well... I would say what's more likely is that because you're giving your, your attention in a kind of systematic way to where you're at, you start to become aware of the cloudy, cloudy thought structures in the mind. Whereas often, it's not that they're not there the rest of the time. It's just that they're, um, we're not attuned to them. We're actually acting out of a cloudy mind most of the time. Whereas what's starting to happen here is in, in just settling, in paying attention, you're starting to notice the cloudiness in your mind. Right? 
So rather than seeing that as a problem or something to be done away with, oh, cloudiness in the mind. That's what's asking for your attention. When you give it attention, you start to notice, oh, I wish it wasn't there. Oh, that sense of pushing, wishing something wasn't here. That's what's asking for your attention. And so just tracking in that way, your experience starts to open up and start to notice what it's like to have a cloudy mind. Start to notice what do you do with phenomena that aren't pleasant and try to push them away. And however hard you try to push, it doesn't seem like very successful. Right? Just demanding that a cloudy mind state go away. Did it work so far? No. It's a really, really significant shift from trying to manipulate our experience to how we think we'd like it to be to being actually interested in how it is and just meeting it like it is. Nothing wrong with cloudy mind state. It's what's here. So it's where your meditation is. Never mind. Nothing magical about the breath. It's a wonderful thing, the breath, to come back to, to establish oneself in presence. But this path is about freedom and awakening. That's what the Buddha was interested in. That's where these teachings come from. That's what we're here for. Right? What the Buddha discovered under the tree wasn't how to stay with his breath. Breathing is a wonderful tool for contacting life in order to see where we need to wake up, in order to see the possibility of freedom, and especially in order to see what am I doing with my life that's unfree. Like feeling reactive and resistant towards cloudy thoughts. So those cloudy thoughts are your friends in as much as they're they're the current invitation for your care and attention. Okay, thank you. Yes. Um, Well, it's my first practice, so probably that's part of the problem, but it really hurts, like my whole back hurts massively. And I actually, I just was interested in, you know, if I slump, effectively, it actually is easier to to let go and feel in a sort of meditative state than sitting straight. So I just wondered how important is it to be straight? There seems to be something that really, really conduces to brightness, to wakefulness, to clear attention about really honouring that kind of impeccable, upright posture. There really does seem to be. Having said that, freedom isn't dependent on posture we're occupying so if you find yourself what can happen particularly if we're not used to practice so much is in the sitting upright there tends to be tension rigidity and even if we think we're relaxing that there's a kind of uh, often some really subtly held but strongly held tension and rigidity and so just sitting still can start to feel like an incredible struggle like really hard work you're nodding oh yes yes. (laughs) we're asked just to sit to sit upright and relax and breathe and at the end of the day we crawl out of the meditation for a whole day of sitting still and breathing so if it if it's if that's the way you're experiencing it it's fine of course to oh to let yourself collapse a bit, to experience some ease and relief. But also really worth inquiring into, what is it about sitting still and quietly, relaxing and breathing, that makes it such hard work? Because the hard work isn't inherent in the activity. Nothing could be further from hard work. Right? What do we do here all day? Oh, I sit around, wander around, 
Eat a bit, rest a bit. So what is it that makes that such hard work? In a way, this is what meditation practice is about. It's about exposing us to our life in a very bare, direct kind of way. Because we're not doing anything extra. Right? All we're doing is exposing ourselves to our life. We're not even adding any visualizations or any mantras or anything. We're just sitting and breathing. So all we're left with is whatever is going on in our life, whatever's going on in heart and mind and body. We're exposed, in short, to the free condition of life and anything that we're imposing on that which is making us feel separate from the free condition of life. So, to see if you can be really interested in the fact that it feels like hard work. To see what might you be adding in There's also a certain amount of um, natural kind of energetic unwinding or opening that happens in the sort of refinement of mind and body in sitting still. And so whether it's knees or shoulders or back or neck or uh, anywhere else, there can just be particularly uh, in the beginnings of practice just strange kind of deep aches or throbbing or just sharp pains or things that don't seem to have any relationship to sitting down, right? I can sit down in the sofa and watch a movie like this for two hours, no pain. But I come and sit here for 20 minutes, oh, ow. Right? So it's not about the sitting. And so some degree of the, the willingness to sit in the fire of that, to inquire into it, to soften around it, to care for it can really let it move and if you sense the that there's some kind of authenticity in doing that that there's some kind of beauty or potential in doing that then I would say just to give yourself as wholeheartedly as you can to showing up in that way and letting it work itself out mm. Partly, I think your your skill with it improves over time. Like the the you learn the art of inquiry. Partly, it can be really helpful if you find yourself uh, lost or confused to have some relationship with somebody who can reflect back to you in that way. And I would say, if you're in any doubt of how to inquire or where to go or what to follow, that your body is much, much more reliable as something to inquire into than your mind. It's just mind is just much more tricky than the body. We can inquire directly into the mind, directly into thought processes. We certainly can. But if you find that you, that's not happening, you start to inquire in that way and it just gets kind of abstract or, or intellectual or confused or like, oh, what is it this and is it that and, you know come back to what's happening here because the body doesn't play tricks in the same way that the mind does so just to, at any moment as a, as a perfectly good if you, place to begin inquiry what's happening when I just settle in what's happening well nothing much this is often the first thing nothing much oh really and then just to look well what's most predominant in that nothing much Oh, there's a kind of warmth in my belly. 
Okay. Oh, warmth. What's that warmth like? Oh, it's kind of round. And sort of ball-like. It's a kind of a silver colour. Oh, how's that to have a warm silver ball in my stomach? Oh, it feels good, you see? So just to come back to your body as a place, and just, like I say, whatever you give space to, that's what opens up. And there's, a, there's an extraordinary kind of natural intelligence, or wisdom in the Buddhist tradition. There's a natural wisdom to that process that knows where to go and how to open up and what to follow much better than I could ever work out how to follow. It's so, you know, it's so complex, human mind, human heart, human body. How could I figure it out what to inquire and which direction to go? But when we give space to what's here and let it open up, wisdom leads the way if we let it. And then, of course, our, our skill of trusting that wisdom is something that we develop as we develop uh, clarity and trust and uh, the willingness to really keep looking at whatever shows up. And particularly the willingness to, sh- to look at the stuff which shows up, which we'd really rather not see about ourselves, about our patterns, about our motivations. Yeah, sure. Do I know which field the Buddha is in? Do I know which field the bull is in? Okay, this is a taking a walk around Guy House question. Right, I was on a different track. Which field is the Buddha in? I thought it was like a Zen koan. <laughs> the Buddha is beyond all fields. <laughs> mm. So I thought I'd, I'd speak a little bit this evening about um, the kind of traditional context for this practice and these teachings. And um, with the idea that then tomorrow I'd speak about more in terms of a kind of contemporary context. And I'd like to use the framework of the Four Noble Truths to do that. So common to all Buddhist traditions and somebody was asking me today about um, different Buddhist traditions and which one this is in and how it contrasts and compares to others and I have to say I always always panic a bit with those questions because I don't really know Guy House I don't think really knows although there's probably a policy about it but really and maybe for some of you, you're not at all familiar with the different Buddhist traditions. If so, I say, lucky you. <laughs> because like any uh, kind of a religious system, it can get kind of dogmatic with various people claiming to be the purest tradition or the oldest tradition or the fastest tradition or the best tradition in, in different ways. And rather than dividing them into those kind of different traditions I would say the classification I more like to use is one that's teachings and practice that are more cultural or translative in their approach more offering things to to, uh, uh, beliefs to take on rituals to do things to study and a kind of way to orientate oneself in terms of a world view and then there's the other part of the tradition which I would call uh, rather than cultural Buddhism, wisdom Buddhism which is more about the interest in the kind of the direct possibilities for for transformation not really worrying so much about 
lineage or um, dogma, but really being interested in, as the Buddha was very interested in, the potentials for looking deeply at life to transform it. And the Four Noble Truths are the framework the Buddha used to talk about the problem of finding ourselves as humans and the resolution of that problem. And they're common across all those traditions. They're one of the few things that every Buddhist, I say it's an ambitious claim, can agree on. I don't know, but pretty much. So, it's interesting when speaking about something like this, which is a very core teaching in Buddhist tradition, to people who, I think it was roughly a third of you, are pretty much completely new to this kind of practice. Some of you are fairly established, and some of you have been practicing for years and years. And so then the dilemma for me is how to, how to speak about the Four Noble Truths in a way that's really accessible to people with not much experience, and that's got some real juice in it for people with much experience. And I guess what I place my trust in in that is that there's something ever fresh about the truth. There's a way in which truth speaks, illumines, shines. And so this, the, the, in speaking about these things, it's really an endeavour to explore the truth together. And that's an endeavour that we partake in mutually, right? Exploring the truth together. And so, from your side as well as listening to what I'm saying, it's really a sense of listening as deeply as one can to one's own response, to see what really resonates, so that one tests the teachings against one's own deepest sense, one's own intuition one's own uh, willingness to contact the, one's own living experience in relation to what's being spoken about. These truths, as I say, are called the Four Noble Truths. And nobles are rather kind of an old-fashioned word, maybe. It really means the four ennobling or empowering, or liberating truths. And I think that's a helpful way to see them. And they're the truths about suffering. Dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word the Buddha used, which really has a much wider definition than just suffering. It means stress, it means difficulty, it means that which is hard to bear. And it really covers everything from the kind of abject confusion and misery that human beings can experience to a very kind of low-level, subtle kind of unease. So it basically covers every condition of heart and mind that isn't completely free, that isn't completely peaceful, that isn't completely... uh, Open and free, yeah. And the the first empowering or liberating truth is that there is dukkha in life. There is suffering in life. And the Buddha says this is a truth to be understood. And the Buddha picks out four things to point at of all the the ways to look at life and discuss life and this first one can seem kind of uh, obvious oh yeah I remember picking up the book uh, The Road Less Travelled by Scott M. Peck and the first line of the book says life is hard and when I first read that it's like oh how great someone tells it like it is that's what I mean about the truth speaks. 
There is suffering in life. There is difficulty. There is unsatisfactoriness. There's things that don't go our way. There's that which is hard to bear. This, the Buddha says, is to be understood. Because very often we don't understand that. We don't understand that unsatisfactory things, unwanted, unwelcome things, difficulty, challenge, things not working out as we'd like, is a normal part of existence. No human being has ever gone through life with everything working out fine. Again, it's obvious. And yet, if we look at our own lives, we find we come back again and again to the sense that my life ought to be like that. Things ought to be fine for me. And that when they're not, there's something wrong. That it's someone's fault. It's my fault. Well, I've, I've, I've messed it up. I've done something wrong. Or it's someone else's fault because of what they did or they said. Or it's somehow God's fault or life's fault. Life's got it in for me. And this is called not understanding this liberating truth. That it's That it's normal. There's something incredibly relieving, I think, about that. There's a way in which we oh, can lay down a little bit of the burden of responsibility that we so easily pick up. That I've got to make my life fine. And if we look, we invest a huge amount of time, huge amount of energy in trying to make everything pleasant in trying to make everything smooth, in trying to make all the outcomes um, the ones I'd like. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with (coughs) trying to provoke favourable outcomes. The problem is that we believe that it's possible to make all favourable outcomes and then we suffer when that doesn't happen. And we blame. We put pressure on ourselves, others, for that being the case. There's something kind of obvious and yet actually very subtle and very beautiful in recognizing hello, it's normal. Things not working out the way we'd like them to is normal. This, the Buddha says, is something to be understood. Why? Because in the understanding it, there's some release. Release of struggle. There's a cause, second liberating truth, there's a cause for this suffering, which is something to be abandoned. First truth, to be understood. Second truth, to be abandoned. The cause for this suffering, this heartache, this difficulty, this struggle, this sense of hard to bear, And a lot of the Buddha's teachings are really about pointing out the ways in which we cause our suffering. We make our happiness, our ease, our well-being, our freedom, we make it dependent on so many things. And we tend to do that with the mantra of if only. If only I had dot, 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 then I'd be happy. If only he would behave differently, then everything would be okay. If only I didn't have this or that neurosis, then I'd be okay. If only my knees weren't hurting, then I'd really be able to meditate. 
What delusion. Again, this is to see for ourselves if we have an extraordinarily compulsive habit of making our depend our happiness dependent on this or that. Mostly we make it dependent on a lot of what we make it dependent on is what I want. What I think I need to get and what I think I need to get rid of. And as we saw with the question earlier on, things so easily present as something I need to get or get rid of. And what the Buddha is pointing to here is a wise relationship where we're really interested in what's happening rather than in what could or should be happening, what we need to get or get rid of. So worth asking oneself, what do I need right now? What do I need in order to know my freedom? Extraordinary contemplation. What needs to be different right now? in order for peace, for contentment, for well-being, for ease, for freedom. What needs to be different right now in order to know the freeness of life? a better way to phrase that. What needs to be different right now in order to know the freeness of life? Very interesting to see what we come up with as responses. The list of what needs to be different in order to know life's freedom, in order to be free, in order to be awake, is the list of ways we've, we're holding on, we're insisting, we're making demands on life. The ways we're causing our suffering. It's a pretty kind of stark teaching in some ways. It's certainly... Th- throws us back on our own resources a lot. And Buddha says this is a liberating truth. That our clinging, our if-onlys, our rigidity, our demands upon life, our insistence that if only it was like this, causes us to feel cut off, separate, in struggle, in competition with life. And so, teachings, our practice, really encourage us to look at the ways we hold on, the ways we insist, the ways we reach out for, and the ways we uh, push away our experience. And we can observe that just sitting quietly here. We don't need to take ourselves into numerous abstract situations where that may or may not be the case. But just to see as we're sitting here the ways in which we 
reach out for, we grasp after the pleasant, the wanted, the lovely. And the ways we resist, we push away, we're fearful of the unpleasant, the unwelcome, the unwanted. This is really deserving of our care and attention. And so these kind of three realms of clinging, of um, rigidifying life, what I want or don't want, the first one, what I think, the second one, it's like this. How much suffering is caused by clinging to our ideas of how things are? It's like this, we say, with all the force of our conviction. And yet if you look at any kind of conflict, conflict is about one person saying, it's like this, and someone else saying, no, 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 it's like that. And the fact that both people are equally convinced of their position. To me it's very clear that it's like this. And to you it's very clear that it's like that. What does that say about the this is and that's? That the dukkha is in the clinging. It's fine to hold views, even strong views. But we cling to them as if they can express the whole truth of things. We cling to what I want and don't want. We cling to what I think about things. And we cling to our sense of who we take ourselves to be. And we, and we defend that. And we armour that. And we um, prop that up in so many different ways. So one of the beautiful things about a silent retreat is that we're not required to posture, to present and to prop up our sense of self. We tend to do it anyway, even in the silence. We tend to imagine ourselves in conversation with others. We tend to imagine what they'll think of us. We certainly can... Imagine all kinds of things about, about other people, not even knowing their name, which country they come from, anything about them. But he's probably like this, she's definitely like that. Extraordinary. The kind of habit energy of setting ourselves apart from and comparing ourselves with others, finding ourselves better than, or finding ourselves worse than. And either way, better than or worse than finding ourselves implicitly with that, apart from, separate from, somehow in competition with. And the Buddha talks to, uh, the Buddha points to clinging, particularly in these three fields right? what I want or don't want, what I think, views and opinions about things. And who I take myself to be as the primary ways we really get into trouble with our experience. The third liberating truth there's freedom from that suffering. as a condition of life that we can know, that we can inhabit, a condition that actually animates our very being, that is unbound by all the conditions that happen, unbound by the thises and thats, the wanteds and unwanteds, the likes and dislikes, the comings and goings. Unbound. Even by life and death. I remember my teacher, one of my teachers saying to me once, 
Practice and teachings. Practice and teachings. Freedom is unstoppable. Actually, even without practice and teachings, freedom is unstoppable. Life is fundamentally free. Has to be. Only something limitlessly free could manifest a whole universe. Planets, plants, oceans, beings. This. This that lives and moves and thinks and feels. Billions of them. (laughs) Just think, the, the only possible basis for that is something limitlessly free, limitlessly creative. Look at any anywhere we look, within or without, we see the products of the limitless freedom of life. We see the outflows, the manifestations of the limitless freedom of life. But practice and teachings Practice and teachings are the means by which we can recognize that freedom, not as an idea, but as the very nature of who we are, the very animating principle of our being. And to the extent to which we don't recognize that, to that extent we act in ways that don't accord with that freedom. To the extent to which we experience ourselves as separate from, cut off from, to that extent we experience grief, separation, hurt, pain and therefore desperation aggression constantly seeking somehow to reconnect acknowledging that there's difficulty, that there's suffering in life, allows us in a very real way, I mean really acknowledging that, seeing that again and again, seeing it in the light of our own experience again and again. Oh, unwanted things happen. Oh, this is the unpleasant, the unwelcome. Oh, this is normal. Seeing that, acknowledging that again and again, gives us the space to really engage with it. To really engage with life. We can only really meet what's happening when we're not struggling to change or manipulate it. When we don't think there's something wrong about that, that it shouldn't be happening. Hence the first liberating truth. Waking up to the ways in which we perpetuate that suffering through our clinging, through our demands, through what I want, what I think, who I take myself to be, is the way in which we start to pull the rug out from under our rigidity, our unexamined views. These practices, these teachings, in that way, the way in which we start to sense the limitless, the free, that which is unbound by suffering, by comings and goings, by this is and that's.
that in which our being truly has its rest, its free expression. And then the Buddha says, there's a way, there's a path to cultivate the end of suffering. There's a way in which to engage with that suffering. And what we've been doing here the last day or two is part of that engagement. Cultivating presence is the very, very basis of this engagement with life. But it would be a shame if our whole spiritual practice was reduced just to the practice of meditation. Even though it's so fundamental, even though it's the very basis. No presence, no steadiness, no brightness of mind, no real capacity to make a difference. But there has to be a whole larger context. And so that's the bit I'd like to leave to talk about tomorrow. And so my intention with these reflections is somehow to ground our practice in the deepest possibility for it. Recognizing the difficulty in life. Looking as sincerely as we can for the ways in which we keep that difficulty going. The ways we interfere with our own natural freedom. And pointing towards the awakening and the freedom that holds all this, that allows all this to be here at all. That allows our own life to unfold. I was saying last night how life is profoundly mysterious. And sometimes when our own story about my meditation and my posture and my uh, body pain and my uh, lunch and my rest after lunch and my space on the cushion and my future and my relationships and my plans and oh, sometimes when all that isn't taking up so much room we might be struck by just wow all by itself. Life just keeps holding me together. Life keeps holding this up. Life keeps animating this body. Regardless of all my clumsy efforts. Look. Hands move. Face is animating. Feeling life happens. Ideas. Where, where does all this come from? Life is a constant confirmation of the freedom that animates it. May we awaken to that. May we know that as our true nature. May we live as a conscious expression of that freedom. And if our days here, if our practice here is in the service of that, then it's time very well spent. May it be so. Thank you for listening. Some
quiet opportunity now, either for some further sitting here or some exquisite silent walking under the night sky. And then we'll have a short sitting together in here at about 10 to 9 to finish the day together. It says on here that it'll be 45 minutes sitting, but it, it won't be. So please do come along. Okay, thank you.